0: Out to school, the teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical math. You study him hard, hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone, and the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. If you're now back for talk out of school. Benny all I'm a sailor. Hello to the Tribe of Love, listening to today's broadcast of Talk Out of School. Bienvenidos, mi familia. Bienvenidos a todos. Welcome, my family, WBAI, Gotham listeners. My name is Daniel Alisea. My pronouns are he and his. And I am the proud son of Manuel Alisea and Alma Alisea. I welcome you today to another episode of Talk Out of School. I'm coming to you once more from WBAI. We are listener-sponsored, locally controlled, non-commercial, Pacifica radio, free speech radio here in New York City. We are found on 99.5 FM. We are also found on WBAI.org. At Talk Out of School, we talk about the issues and controversies affecting our public schools and public education here locally in New York City, statewide, and nationally. And if you would like to listen again to Talk Out of School, you can download us, our podcast, on Apple or Spotify. They are also found on the archives on WBAI, and you can also now download our podcast at educators of nyc's the wire and so if you go to www.thewire.educators.nyc you'll be able to access our podcast there what a show we have lined up for you today i had the distinct honor of interviewing susan edelman She is a veteran news reporter who has been reporting on the news for over 40 years, but more poignantly has been reporting on New York City since 1997 for almost a quarter of a century. She has reported on New York City schools on 9-11, and many other issues important to new yorkers in a moment i'm going to share my interview with her she also shared some voice memos to really give us a feel of what it was like to investigate new york city schools since 1997 to the present and so here's my interview with susan edelman i'm on the line with veteran news reporter who exclusively wrote for the New York Post for almost 24 years. She is now semi-retired and is now a self-employed freelancer. Over the years at the Post, uh, she has written about many topics, including New York City schools, city government, 9-11, and so much more. She is probably one of the most prolific and significant New York City investigative reporters of our time. Uh, She is the proud mom and a grandmother, Welcome, Susan Edelman, to Talk Out of School.
1: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I love the show.
0: Thank you. And so I know that you are a product of California Public Schools. What inspired you, Susan, to become a journalist?
1: Now, I went to uh, UCLA and um, took a journalism class. I got the bite. I got bitten. Um, I got the bug, they call it. And you just fall in love with the work, uh, writing, exposing things, and uh, so that's, and then I went to the the University of Illinois for journalism school one year, got a master's degree, and I've been a reporter for more than 40 years.
0: So Susan, from California, you decided to take a, a position with the New York Post in, I believe, February of 1997. What made you join the New York Post?
1: Well, earlier, uh, you know, first I joined the Bergen Record, moved out to the East Coast. My husband was from Queens, and um, so after we got married, we moved out to New York, to New Jersey. I got a job at the Bergen Record, and I worked there for a a number of years, and I find one of the editors who went to the Post called me and uh, invited me to join, and I did. And just, just wanted to be part of the New York scene. And, uh, the, the post had a very good reputation. It was actually, my husband said, Are you sure you want to go there? I mean, the, it may not survive. Um, and I said, Doesn't matter. I'll enjoy it while I, while I can. So I did.
0: And so did you always write about New York City schools? I know you've written on many different topics. When did you really focus a lot of your work on New York City schools?
1: Well, soon after I came, I was uh, I was made the education the daily education reporter, and I did that for about two years under uh, while Rudy Crew was the chancellor, and there was a board of education, not a department of education. This was when there was a seven member board, you know, members appointed by the. The five boroughs, and maybe one by the mayor, and would go into a meeting, and they'd all debate. Um, meeting at one ten Livingston Street, the old board of it headquarters. So I did that for about two years. It was really interesting. I saw how Rudy Cruz's relationship with uh, Mayor Giuliani soured. They argued first they first differed on the issue of vouchers. Giuliani wanted to give vouchers to students because I think he wanted to curry favor with the conservative governor and politicians. And Rudy Crew was very much against it. And Giuliani also wanted to have mayoral control, make it make the Board of Education a city agency. So and Crewe was very much against that too. So I saw how Giuliani was like a maniac. He just made life miserable for a Rudy Crew. Every day he would do something to throw some kind of grenade in his path. Um, <clears throat> and it just, to me, I got a sense of what Rudy Giuliani really was before 9 11. Uh, so they uh, eventually, uh, there was, the, he eventually was fired by the board. In 1999, um, but it, during those years, there were some interesting things. Um, Ed Stanzik was the special commissioner of investigation, and he did sweeping investigations of fraud and cheating and waste. And he would—you don't see that anymore today. The investigations are very limited by the special commission investigation. They do little things, you know, someone. Uh, charged for overtime when they didn't work the overtime. I, you know, I'm not saying that's not important, but they don't do the sweeping investigations of corruption and fraud and waste that Ed Stanzik did. He's, you know, he has died. Um, some of his, uh, then also during those years, the governor appointed what the Moreland Commission, which is a gubernatorial Commission to investigate the city schools and they investigated the cons- school construction authority and how they were spent, you know, they had all billions of dollars and they weren't really building any schools or they weren't doing it efficiently. And they also investigated s- some things that I exposed, which a series of articles on how schools were adding their, their enrollment with phantom classes phantom students, students who weren't there anymore, had left, and they had classes filled with, with just, with names of people who were not there anymore, and they would get, this would help them collect more money. And the Moreland Commission, when they came out with their report, they confirmed this, and they found so many cases of, all over the city of this kind of uh, fraud, and they even had dead dead children on their ro- on the rosters the headline in the post the front page headline was dead kids learning you know a play on dead man walking oh, and uh so it was that came out during the years and rikers island even did it they rikers island had a school and for for students who were incarcerated and they padded their enrollment to get more money so those are the kind of scandals that came on, came up during those years. Once he parted ways with Crew, there were many stories about the dueling Rudies or the feuding Rudies. Giuliani threatened to, quote, blow up the Board of Education. And that's what happened in 2002 when it became the Department of Education under Mayor Bloomberg's control.
0: These these stories never seem to surprise, especially with uh, New York City Department of Education. Um, So once crew was gone and Giuliani were gone, Mm -hmm. did you continue on the education beat? What uh, what other roles did you take on? Uh, And then we can discuss a little bit about Bloomberg and and some Mm -hmm. of the significant stories under the chancellor's that he had appointed.
1: Okay. uh, no, I asked to be taken off that beat. I was so exhausted, it was such an exhausting, grueling beat. I had a young, young children, and uh, I was virtually almost about to get a divorce because I was working so much. And um, so I got off and I got on the Sunday um beat, the Sunday team, which writes stories for the Sunday paper, and that was gives you a little bit of a breathing room, you could work on things a few more days you know than than every day and you don't have the stress of the the breaking news every single day um the people that followed me were all excellent reporters carl campanili he's still there a political reporter david andriada he was terrific but he's he's left yoav gonin was wonderful he is now at the city the city website and salim algar <clears throat> he's now um he moved to Florida with his wife and children and he's covering Florida for the post. So, but I, I went on and I did uh, other things like, um, us, when a reporter died after giving his brother a liver transplant, turned out that he had a bad infection and over the weekend it wasn't caught. And we that launched a whole series of articles about the Mount Sinai liver transplant program. People were getting infections, people were dying, it was filthy, people were clean patients had to clean their own rooms, and it was shut down for a year and you know, I guess got back into shape. Um so I worked on that, many, many stories about that. And then I also after nine eleven, um it was It's been nonstop. I've been covering 9-11 since 9-11, mainly in the beginning, um, a few years later, about all the ground zero workers getting ill, getting cancer. And there was a battle mounting. um, The city was fighting um, mounting lawsuits by the by the workers. And um, so that took up that was that was an ongoing uh series of stories and eventually of course they they settled the case and you know that some of the workers got some settlements from the city so i'm sure
0: a lot of your your work still continued um during the bloomberg years Mm -hmm. i'm sure um you remember levy klein black and walcott um Mm -hmm. what stories Do you remember that were significant that you investigated during the Bloomberg years, which absolutely transformed uh, the New York City Department of of Education?
1: In the Bloomberg years, he and Chancellor Joel Klein closed about three dozen large high schools that were out of control and chaotic, like Franklin K. Lane and Lafayette in Brooklyn and Christopher Columbus in the Bronx. The buildings were broken up into several smaller schools with no more than 500 or so students. The results were mixed, but today several excellent large schools like Francis Lewis and Midwood remain extremely popular and offer a wide range of courses and extracurriculars. Klein also launched his Leadership Academy to put young teachers on a fast track to become administrators. It became notorious for producing some of the city's worst principals, accused of misconduct, mismanagement, and harassment of staffers. Also under Bloomberg, there was the big lie, I call it. From 2006 to 2009, the number of city students passing state math tests in grades 3 to 8 skyrocketed. The graduation rate steadily rose. Bloomberg called all this a huge victory and used it to win an unprecedented third term in office. But we learned that the test scores rose because the state was dumbing down the tests or lowering the points that kids needed to show proficiency. And while the graduation rate went up, more kids were graduating unprepared and needed remedial classes in math and English at CUNY. What happened was, behind the scenes, um, the state education commissioner, Richard Mills, was instructing CTB McGraw-Hill the uh, the ones that did the, prepare the test to gradually lower the, quote, cut scores, the minimal points that kids needed to pass or to demonstrate proficiency. So when you lower the bar, more and more, each year more and more kids were passing. So those increases were really a big lie, and Bloomberg used that to get an extension of one or two extensions of mayoral control because he was saying, look what a success I am, but it was all a a sham.
0: And so de Blasio takes over in 2014, uh, becomes mayor and appoints uh, Carmen Farina. What could you tell me about uh, your experience with Farina and in Carranza during the de Blasio years?
1: De Blasio's first chancellor was Carmen Farina, who came out of retirement for four years. Soon after she took over, a teacher alerted the post to P.S. 106 in Far Rockaway, which we called the School of No, because it had no textbooks, no gym or art classes, no nurse's office, and no special ed teachers. Kids were ushered into the auditorium every day to watch movies. Principal Marcella Sills was finally fired for excessive lateness and playing hooky while collecting full pay and benefits. de Blasio's biggest success was launching Universal Pre-K, but his other signature issue, the renewal program to fix failing schools was a flop. The city spent about 750 million on 94 struggling schools, but most of them didn't improve very much, and some wound up closing. Millions were spent on leadership coaches with shady track records and consultant friends with connections to Farinha, I found. De Blasio finally pulled the plug in 2017. We also did a series of stories on grade fixing and credit recovery in high schools. In one, a teenage girl at Bryan High School was shocked that she had passed a history class despite doing no work and felt she should have been failed and sent to summer school. Farinha created a task force on academic policy that was supposed to crack down on these practices, but it was a farce. Nothing significant was ever done and the problem only got worse. Under Farinha, a big scandal erupted at Dewey High School in Brooklyn over a scheme to award graduation credits for non-existent classes kids called it easy pass after much media pressure the principal was finally removed from the school but she was allowed to stay on the payroll at a desk job for years to build up a fat pension i was shocked but it happened again at Massmith high school teacher whistleblowers went to councilman robert holden who referred them to me they, these teachers told about administrators pressuring them to pass every student, helping kids cheat on regents' exams, and giving fake credits to push failing kids out the door. The DOE dragged out an investigation for two years and finally removed the principal. But one of Chancellor David Banks's first decisions was to let the principal collect his $187,000 salary plus raises and other benefits for seven years until he retires. The problem of grade fraud, grade fixing, grade inflation is just widespread now. And there's it's practically, uh, there's no one cares about it. In fact, that's what schools are expected to do. They're expected to um, uh, inflate the grades and do anything they can to get teachers to pass students. And I, I heard from so many teachers that and I still do, that they're, they were pressured, pressured to change the grades of a student who either didn't do the work or uh, didn't deserve didn't, didn't deserve a certain grade or didn't deserve to pass. They were just under pressure to pass them through, pass them on. And I've heard from so many teachers, by the way, teachers are my best source, I, um, my best sources, and I hear from them all the time, and, um, they are really the whistleblowers of what's going on in schools and they really want to see it done right and they can't speak up because they're they could get retaliated against um, so uh, I'm a proud member of the badass teachers um, association <laughs> I'm proud of that there was other cases this was a very tragic situation 2015 after the common core exams started in the state, they called them the common core, um, uh, a principal of a West Harlem school. Um, I found out, uh, they just said, someone said, Oh, she would left the school or she got ill. And I found out that she threw herself in front of a subway train and killed herself. Um, a day after her students took the common core exams, the state exams. And it turned out that that day, uh, one of their teachers had complained that she was cheating. She was filling in the answers for children who hadn't finished the test so they would get a better score. And, yeah, that was a very tragic thing. That just shows the the pressure that principals were under as well.
0: You're listening to Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 Free Speech Radio. This is Daniel Alisea of Talk Out of School. And I'm speaking to Sue Edelman. She is a veteran news reporter uh, who has covered many topics, including our New York City schools.
1: Another big story that stands out. De Blasio dragged his feet for several years on the DOE's investigation of 39 yeshivas accused of depriving religious school students of a basic secular education, which is required by state law. Internal emails leaked to me showed that de Blasio and his top deputies agreed to go easy on the yeshivas to win Orthodox Jewish support for his continued control of city schools. The DOA investigation is still not complete and a report not yet issued.
0: De Blasio then uh, replaces Farina with Carranza and also Misha Porter. What do you recall of the Carranza and... uh, Order,
1: era. Well, Carranza brought in his, uh, a lot of his friends from Houston, from California. Um, one of his friends was Mario Trujillo. He had worked for Disneyland for years. He was a communications manager for Disney Parks and Resorts, an entertainment manager, and he they hired him to be uh, something called the Experience chief experience officer. It's kind of funny. Um he brought in Karan's also brought in a guy named Abram Jimenez who I found had a very troubled history in California. He had all kinds of disciplinary problems, but the biggest problem was he was a vice president before he joined the DOE. He was vice president of Illuminate Education a software company in Irvine, California, and he had an investment in this company, which was doing business with, um, the DOE. And so that was a major conflict of interest. So he, he resigned and it turned out later Illuminate Education was the one that had the uh, data breach for something like 850,000 students in New York, in the city, um, and this DOE finally fired them. So he was with that. With
0: cover. Schedula and IO.
1: Pardon me? Schedula.
0: Yes. Oh, wow.
1: Yes. Illuminate Education owned, uh, took over IO. Uh, that's the company that had the, the data breach.
0: I, I would say, you know, as a teacher myself, I, I have seen a lot of your work inside of the New York Post. And in some ways, it's a, it's a form of advocacy, Um back back in the early 1900s, they call it muckraking. Mm -hmm. It has exposed uh, a lot of, I see a common thread, um, whether it be Giuliani, um, Bloomberg, de Blasio and Adams, a lot of the nepotism, a lot of the favoritism and cronyism and Mm -hmm. corruption that often we see in our New York City public schools. And without a doubt, that is important work what do you see as far as your role um, as a journalist when it comes to that type of reporting?
1: Yes, I see myself as a somewhat of a muckraker, and I've always been sort of a persona non grata with the top okay. officials and the press office. Um, and because I hear from so many whistleblowers, and I want to write about what they what they want to expose and they trust me with it and if they come up with ways like they often don't want their names they all want to be anonymous because they fear of retaliation but they help me get the evidence the documents um that i need to to write the stories so Um, I think that's important. I would love to do more regular features about what goes on in schools. I've done a number of those. I love going, I've loved going into schools and classrooms. And I haven't done a lot of that lately, but that was wonderful. But there's so much people are reporting so many problems that, you know, I don't, it's hard to find time to do those, those nice features. Um, I would have liked to do more of those. Um, one time, I did an article about a, a teacher who they opened up the floorboards in their in the classroom closet where it was open, and the kids found so many artifacts from what years ago? Maybe thirty years ago. And I helped them find a. Uh, they found the name of a student, and I I tracked this, the guy down. He was like in his sixties, and he and he met up with the class and. You know they they learn so much and it was such a pleasure the kids are adorable i once visited uh, staten island tech which i was bowled over by the students are just unbelievably bright and um, uh, involved in their in their schools um in their activities so it's it's always a pleasure to talk to the students themselves for whatever reason
0: i've so. always said it with, with the with my profession, it's, it's not the children. The children are always wonderful and there will always forever be children. Um, sometimes it's just the adults that can
1: mm-hmm.
0: really um, challenge us.
1: Exactly. Uh, so uh-huh.
0: Eric Adams, um, this administration, can you tell us a little bit about some of the stories that um, you have investigated? We'd love to talk a little bit about these um, 25 bilingual teachers that recently um, came out saying that they were being exploited, especially by an organization of Dominican supervisors, ADASA, and uh, headed by, well, one of the heads was Emmanuel Polanco at MS-80 in the Bronx. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience under Mayor Adams, the yes. DOE, and if you could speak a little bit about the story? Uh, honestly. Yes. First, I wanted to say, you know, when
1: uh, it was very exciting when Chancellor Banks took over and I had an interview with him and he was saying how he's going to cut the bureaucracy, the bureaucratic bloat, and, uh, you know, put more people back into schools or closer to schools. And I started collecting um, from them who was being appointed and what their salaries were. And I also did uh, he was appointing more and more of the top People and they check with the independent budget office, and they gave me, uh, they keep track of this. And they found that in the first six months of his tenure, the budget, he had gone more than $100 million over budget for just the central office, Tweed, and the bureau, uh, the borough offices, the district offices. So that's basically the bureaucracy. Those are the people who work outside schools. And they had gone, he had gone hundred million over budget. And more controversially, uh Chancellor Banks promoted uh Tracy Collins, uh the mayor Adams' longtime partner, uh live-in partner, and uh to a high position senior advisor. Um with a $221,000 salary, which was a huge raise from what she had been making. And this happened, I noted, six months or so after Mayor Adams had appointed Banks's girlfriend, Sheena Wright, to be a, a deputy mayor. They were so angry at this story, which was totally accurate. They have blackballed me. And they don't answer any, the, the DOE press office will not answer any questions. They won't even say no comment. They just totally ignore. And they're also ignoring other education questions from other reporters at the post. So they're penalizing and blackballing us. Um, it's not going to stop me or anyone else from writing about it. What, what we want to write about. Uh, it's just cutting off they're cutting off their nose despite their face because they can't get their viewpoints into the stories that we're writing about. So I think they're losing out um, by not uh, giving their voice to an article. Um, to the Dominicans, um, uh, I, I wanted to talk to some of the teachers, uh, someone in the DOE uh, <clears throat> got me the name, the number of one of these teachers who I, who was quoted in the in the articles where they were raving about this program and it was wonderful, and I called up and it was uh, the sister of one of them and she spoke Spanish. I was able to speak a little Spanish with her and she got the teacher to call me and that opened up the whole thing because we found out <clears throat> he was in a house with eleven uh rubing house that Adasa had leased with eleven teachers and they each had to pay like thirteen hundred or fourteen hundred a month and they had they only had one room and they shared a kitchen and a bathroom and there were other restrictions and um it seemed like Adassa was making a profit because I found out what they were paying to lease this duplex and so what they were charging in rent was, you know, a, a, a hefty profit over what they were paying for it. And then they gave us the address, the, the, the teachers, they were very, very nice teachers, and they gave us the addresses of two other places where Adasa was renting. One of them was a co-op um, owned on the record by Emmanuel Polanco's mother, she, he's the principal of MS 80, and he was vice, first vice president of ADASA. Um, ADASA is the Association of Dominican American Supervisors and Administrators. They're DOE administrators. And so he, this, he, I found on city records that it was his listed as his own has owned by his mother and i heard out, heard later that the mother has d- died several years ago yet this um co-op is still listed in her name so where you know he was collecting money and they were paying money to his wife who happens to be uh, an elementary teacher in the doe and the teachers had to pay her money and they also were told they couldn't have visitors, they didn't have a key to their own mailbox, um, and they just felt uh, very... And I'm finding out something else, another abuse that happened I'm gonna be writing about shortly. But um, no one seems to be helping them. I'm trying to, you know, the UFT said they would help one teacher. They're having a meeting soon with the UFT, but the UFT says they're trying to get these teachers help. But the point is that this was Chancellor Banks. This ADASA group has been a, uh, a favorite of all the chancellors, especially Carranza, Varina, and um, Banks. And they seem to have a lot of political plow- power and they can get a- They thought they could get away with this. And uh, this was supposed to be a, a, a partnership between the DOE, ADASA and the uh consulate, the Dominican consulate in the United States. And the consulate has gone quiet. They have they're not saying anything. And um they say it's under investigation by city and federal authorities. It's so very
0: serious um, allegations. Um
1: Right. It could be like human trafficking, exploitation, um uh extortion, who knows where the money went. Yeah. There's I, I a so- lot of questions.
0: As a child of a Dominican immigrant, a soul crushing story just to hear that here is my employer involved in this type of activity. And it's, it's, it's crushing just to hear. And my heart definitely goes out to, to these 24, 25 teachers. Um, even in my own research, I, I saw that Polanco at Adasa and the chancellor met with the consul in early spring, and I, I guess my questions are, as far as that story, how did Adasa get to decide uh, the logistics? Were they given a, a blank check and said, "Hey, you guys are are in charge of of uh, making sure these teachers, you know, get their visas, they get uh, housing"? I, I'm I'm wondering. How much control they had over that, or are there some other folks at the DOE that uh, knew some things and did not do the right thing?
1: That is a very big question, but it's it's very clear that Adasa had control and was they trusted Adasa to to take over and to to carry out this program. It's it's hard to believe, but it, you know it almost looks like the DOE officials were not watching or not, you know, not carefully watching what was happening at to give them the benefit of the doubt. That would be the, at the best scenario, the worst scenario would be if they knew and knew about these things and approved it. Mm-hmm. But um, it's hard to believe they would. Um, because ADASA is just uh, very, very powerful and Polanco, I've written a lot of stories about his management of his school. There was so many complaints, um, bullying student. He would bully people. He would bully staff, bully students, and a lot of problems with his school, but nothing ever happened to him. Not, you know, he was never disciplined, and this, yet they put so much trust in him to carry out this program.
0: I'll be honest, Susan, I, I've, I've, I've watched a lot of the principles that came out of Bloomberg's Leadership Academy. And I scratch my head when I hear a lot of the stories that have come out uh, since then. And I know you've covered a few of those as well. So I know that you have retired officially from the New York Post and you are now a freelance writer, um, still doing some work with the Post. What made you come to that
1: decision? Well, I've been at the Post for more than 20 years, uh, 24 years. And, uh, and after the pandemic, was basically tired. You know, this the fun of working at a newspaper is to be in the newsroom. And during the pandemic, sitting at my dining room table uh, the whole time, and it, it was just very tiring. And uh, new ownership came into the Post, um, and just time to move on for sh- for sure. And um, even though I'm still writing for it, but I'm I feel myself as a free agent now. I could ch- pick and choose what I would like to write about. I I take on assignments if I like it. For example, I wrote a, about a special section on the 20th anniversary of uh, 9/11. Worked on that. Interviewed firefighters who were on the job after their own. Fathers were killed on nine eleven, and but so I feel like, and I'd like to do more uh, investigative or enterprise reporting instead of the you know the daily grind. Um, so and take a step back and and um, do, do keep doing it because I still love it. I still enjoy it.
0: I'd love to see a Susan Edelman Substack.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so, you know, all news media outlets. Have biases. Um, New York Post is no exception. We could speak about other news outlets as well. Mm-hmm. The Post is one of the oldest running newspaper here in New York City since 1801, started by Alexander Hamilton.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now owned by News Corporation, if if I'm I'm correct. Some correct. would say that that the New York Post uh, has a or leans conservative, very populist. Um, ideas at least is coming out of their editorial views. So I guess my question is, do you think that your during your tenure there, and even now, do you think you've been able to separate their editorial positions uh, with your own news reporting?
1: From my tenure there, I think I was. I don't know if that's still the way it is, but I I did feel that way and I was able to write I mean, oftentimes the editorial, they would write editorials based on my articles, which was great. Um, but, uh, they didn't tell me what to write and I didn't tell them what to write. So I, um, the editorial side, and yes, it, you know, it was conservative. Um, but the, what I liked about it was the always looking to expose wrongdoing or, or fraud or waste. Um, That's the thing that I liked about it. And there's, when it comes to something like that, it's not a political thing. It's wrong. It's not Democrat. It's not conservative. It's not Republican. It's just wrong. I feel like I was able to do some, do a lot of that and also stand up for the little guy, stand up for the uh, people being victimized in, whether it be, you know, in a hospital or school. Um, so that was what was gratifying to me. I think um, I it's I, I'm not political myself. Um, I'm not, um, I would call myself independent. And I've, I've liked the post because it's sort of, there was the underdog paper. <clears throat> and, you know, one recent example was the, I was shocked at how the, the mainstream media and, the, and Twitter and the social media uh, censored this, this, the story on Hunter Biden's laptop, which before the election and now years later, a couple years later, everyone admits that that was a totally accurate story. Um, uh, I feel terrible about what happened. Um, feel oh, that it was a, a crushing censorship, a crushing, cause one thing I do believe in is freedom of the press. I'm a very strong believer in freedom of the press. So that was very uh, shocking to me.
0: So what's the nicest thing someone has ever said about your reporting, Susan?
1: Um, one of the nice things, when people trust me, when a, a police officer once told me he was a 9-11, uh, he had a 9-11 illness and he shared a story and he said that we, we he trust me. Trust is very important. I think that is one of the nicest things um anyone has ever said. Anyone who trusts me, I'm I very grateful. Um one teacher once called me lethal, which I thought was funny, it was but it was a nice thing to say. Um and uh which means I kind of get I get results, which is great. Um so I would say the number one thing is having people trust you to tell you their stories and give you um, give you the evidence you need and many people go out on a limb both teachers teachers go out on a limb to give you information and they really they know that if if it comes out that they were blowing the whistle or giving out in, inside information they could get fired they could get disciplined but they go out on a limb to give it to me and other reporters those are the the Um, the people who are the most important in the system. If anyone deserves any credit, they do.
0: Unsung heroes.
1: Yes, yes, definitely.
0: So, Susan, what would you say uh, to the critics of your reporting? I'm sure you've heard criticisms over the years.
1: To critics, I would say that I strongly believe in the importance of good public schools. My mother is a retired elementary school teacher in L.A. My two brothers and I, my husband, and our two kids all attended public schools and colleges, except my daughter attended one private college. My grandson attends a DOE pre-K in Queens, so I care very much about early childhood education.
0: You're listening to Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5. Free Speech Radio. Lainey did want me to ask you about your FOIL lawsuit that you filed, I be- believe, beginning in 2016. Could you tell me a little bit about it?
1: Yes, yes. Um, we had, uh, the, se- me and several reporters, Yoav Gonin was one of them, uh, Carl Campanelli and we had put in FOIL requests that were over a year old or more, and what would happen is every month the DOE press uh foil office would say we will give you the records in next month. They'll give you a date. That date comes and they give you another letter. We're extending it another month and another month and another month. And it turned out uh so I appealed you can appeal when they when they don't give it to you and their answer was that as long as we uh a given extension, we can go on indefinitely. Um, very grateful for the, the New York Post lawyers, and they, they work for the Post and probably other papers, filed a, a lawsuit claiming that this was against the um, open records law, freedom of information law in New York, and it turned out it was true. They, they can't do this. They can't um, extend unilaterally extend their deadlines month after month. Um So I insisted on if we had a settlement, they would give us the records, but I also wanted them to reform the system. And so this would help other people as well, um, anyone else filing a FOIL request. So we came out with that, and they did supposedly reform their system. It sounded good, but they really haven't improved that much. Since the lawsuit, by the way they had to they paid the post seventy five thousand dollars because when you when you sue someone and they're wrong they you may you may recover some of the legal fees but um they what they do now is almost as bad they come up with various excuses to to um extend the deadline, and they're not only extending it a month they're extending it three four or five months at a time. And it's, they, the bottom line is this, they will not reveal, the DOE will not release what they release anything until they want to release it and they won't release what they don't want to release. Forget the law. They don't care about the law. Um And I feel it has a tremendous chilling effect on on uh, filing a freedom of information because I filed freedom of information requests. by the time I get the Records, I don't even give a damn anymore about what I asked. I mean, they it's way past the deadline, way past the news value. and uh, so. not the
0: purpose of why, why they delay. Yeah.
1: Yes, they do do that. And it's extremely frustrating. And it's like, I don't even want to file a Freedom of Information request anymore because I'll probably be in my grave by the time some of this information comes by and comes through. And it's so frustrating after having sued them, and they and they agreed to reform, but they really have no. The seventy five thousand they paid was just the cost of doing business, the way they want to do business, which is to obstruct.
0: Well, I want to thank you, Susan, for your time. I, I really enjoyed uh, our conversation, and uh, thank you so much for joining us today at, at Talk Out of School.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for um, inviting me.
0: As an editorial note, uh, one common thread I I saw and heard uh, from some of the things that Susan shared with us today is that with Giuliani wanting mayoral control and then eventually it happening under Bloomberg, one of the arguments against community control of our schools was that somehow the community school boards were corrupt, and yet whether it be Giuliani, whether it be Bloomberg, and Bloomberg did quite a number on New York City schools. I I would have loved to hear more about the co-locations and how they have affected our school communities. But whether it be Bloomberg, de Blasio, and now the Adams administration, there has probably been 10 times more corruption inside of our New York City schools under mayoral control. And so I think it's time because what we're seeing right now is a generation of families and parents and students and educators who don't remember a time when there was more democracy, more debate, more open discussion surrounding school governance and I'm not talking again about two minutes at a PEP meeting where you're told that you're being heard. It is time that we end mayoral control of our city schools. And lastly, uh, I'm proud to announce that if you go to the digest.educators.nyc, Educators of NYC has launched a new news content site that pretty much puts together all of the various local sources and state and national sources and curates news content um, around especially our new york city schools and public education here locally statewide and nationally and so i am encouraging listeners to join the growing numbers of new yorkers who are now reading and signing up for the digest newsletter online to stay informed on the latest state and national education headlines and if you want to stay updated on new york city public schools and even uft news and talk i encourage you to visit the digest again if you go to thedigest.educators.nyc, you will be able to access that page and I'm encouraging you also to bookmark it. The Digest is curated and powered by the educators of NYC. Thank you so much, Mi Familia, for joining me today on Talk Out of School. And thank you so much to my special guest, Sue Edelman. This is Daniel Alisea, your co-host at Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM, a Pacifica radio station. Our show, Talk Out of School, is available as a podcast. If you missed any part of today's broadcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please leave us a kind review. You can also access this podcast at thewire.educators.nyc online. Also, please consider becoming a WBAI buddy. As a WBAI buddy, you become a special supporter of WBAI and this show, Talk Out of School. And you can do so by calling 212-209-2950. Again, that number is 212-209-2950. And please make sure to make mention of this show when you make your donation. You can also... Make a donation online at WBAI.org. Find the button that says become a BAI buddy. Bueno mi gente, I'm going to sign off. And always remember Tribe of Love. That love always wins. My hope this holiday season is that we lift each other up. Mm.